0: Good morning, Redemption. My name is Chris Smith. I'm uh, one of the RC leaders here. We're in First Samuel 14:36 through 46. In those blue Bibles, it's page 135. And uh, if you're looking for a Bible to take home, those blue Bibles under your seats are for you. So if you need a Bible, go ahead and take one home with you. All right. First Samuel 14:36. Then Saul said, "Let us go down after the Philistines by night and plunder them until the morning light. Let us not leave a man of them." Then they said, do whatever seems good to you. But the priest said, let us draw near to God here. And Saul inquired of God, shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you give them into the hand of Israel? But he did not answer him that day. And Saul said, come here, all of you leaders of the people, and know and see how this sin has arisen today. For as the Lord lives who saves Israel, though it be in Jonathan my son, he shall surely die. But there was not a man among all the people who answered him. Then he said to all Israel, You shall be on one side, and I and Jonathan my son will be on the other side. And the people said to Saul, Do what seems good to you. Therefore Saul said, O Lord God of Israel, why have you not answered your servants this day? If this guilt is in me or in Jonathan my son, O Lord God of Israel, give Urim. But if this guilt is in your people Israel, give Thummim. And Jonathan and Saul were taken, but the people escaped. Then Saul said, cast a lot between me and my son Jonathan. And Jonathan was taken. Then Saul said to Jonathan, tell me what you have done. And Jonathan told him, I tasted a little honey with the tip of the staff that was in my hand. Here I am, I will die. And Saul said, God, do so to me and more also. You shall surely die, Jonathan. Then the people said to Saul, Shall Jonathan die, who has worked this great salvation in Israel? Far from it. As the Lord lives, there shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people ransomed Jonathan so that he did not die. Then Saul went up from pursuing the Philistines, and the Philistines went to their own place. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Thank you so much for reading that passage for us. And thank you
1: Redemption North Mountain for letting me be here to preach from God's word today. Um, my name is Xavier, as Chandler introduced. And before I say anything, I just wanna say thank you to Chandler and, t- and thank you to Josh Watt for allowing me to be here for this. They're both amazing leaders and I'm so grateful for a church like this with two great leaders that are kind of leading this church. So I want not we just thank Chandler and thank Josh for just what they do for this place. So uh, I am a high school pastor at a church called Scottsdale Bible Church, and uh, my wife is actually here as well. We've been married for uh, almost five years, and we just had a baby. He is two months old. So here's a picture of my wife, mid-laugh, by the way, mid-laugh, and uh, my little baby in some Nike gear. This is obviously not in Phoenix. Um, That was in Flagstaff. Here's my baby, laughing, cute little boy. And by the way, if you're looking at these pictures, you're like, oh my gosh, their baby's so amazing, so sweet. Here's a picture of reality sometimes. So uh, that's just so you know, this is what we were literally dealing with last night. So um, I'm glad to be here. I'm glad that my family is here as well. And uh, if you have not been around for the last few weeks, uh, your church has been going through a series called We Want a King And this series is looking at 1 Samuel and focusing on the life of Saul. And I get to preach from chapters 13 and chapters 14 of this book. I will not be reading the entirety of both chapters. I would take the entire time of the sermon. But I'm going to be jumping around a little bit for you guys and kind of pointing out some of the realities that are in these chapters. But as I was preparing, it kind of brought me back to high school and reminded me of a story of something that happened when I was younger. Uh, I went to high school right at Sunny Slope, which is pretty close to here, and I was in gym class my senior year. All the guys were in the locker room and we were waiting for gym class to start. So, as we're sitting there, one of our friends walks into the room. He's kind of excited about something and we don't know what it is. He looks at us and he says, I did it. We look back and we say, You did what? He says, I got the tattoo. We're kind of confused because we didn't know he wanted to get a tattoo. But he goes, let me show you. He lifts up his shirt. We look at the tattoo. And you know you've done this before. We kind of go, oh. You don't want to say something good because you know it's, And you don't want to be mean to him because he's really excited about his new tattoo. So he shows us his tattoo. And what it says in black letters on his whole forearm, it says, God helps those who help themselves. We're looking at it kind of giggling to ourselves because we go, I can't believe that he now has this saying permanently on his arm. But we sit back, and at least myself, and go, the reason I'm concerned is because he has a misconception about God written on his arm. For all of us here that know the gospel, we actually know that that statement is not true. That God actually does help those who are helpless. And he helps those that cannot help themselves. That is the heart and the root of the gospel. So for him, forever, he is functioning with this belief in his life. I need to help myself, and then God will help me. He believed it so much so that he literally got it tattooed on his arm. And for many of us, we don't walk around with tattoos or misconceptions, but if we were honest, sometimes our worship Our beliefs, our theology function out of misconceptions about who God is. And what God does beautifully is he actually gives us his word to lovingly correct us and show us his character so that we can worship him correctly. So what I want to do today is I want to go through chapters 13 and chapters 14 and point out a few things. My hope is when you leave here, this is what you have. That you see King Saul and you see some of the misconceptions that he has with worship towards God. Not only that, but my hope is that you'll be able to see that sometimes we live with the same misconceptions in our life. On the other side of that, I would have focused on his son Jonathan. And how he actually lives out in faith appropriately towards God and his character. And how we could actually do the same thing in our lives. With that all being said, before we go into the word, let me pray over this time. So why don't we all just bow our heads, prepare our hearts before God. So God, we love you so much. Thank you for your love for us. My prayer is that you would use your word and the truth from it to lovingly confront some of the misconceptions we have. Even if it's not in thought, would you please confront sometimes when we practice these misconceptions in our life and my prayer is that you would lovingly lead us closer to you and show us your deepest desire for our life to be with you God we love you so much and everybody said amen Amen. all right so we're going into chapter 13 and this is kind of what's happening Chapter 10, verse 8, Samuel tells Saul to do something. He says, I want you to go to Gilgal for this fight against the Philistines, and I want you to wait seven days for me, and when I come, I'm going to bring the burnt offering. So we kind of see this happening right here in this passage, but right before uh, it starts in verse 5, there's a few things. Saul has now been king for a couple years, and he has his people coming with him for this battle. He has 2,000 people with him, and 1,000 go with his son, Jonathan. We see this quick moment where Jonathan actually wins a battle against the Philistines with his area where he was at. And now we see what's happening with Saul in verse 5. It says this. And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel. 30,000, some uh, interpreters say it's actually 3,000, but the point being there was a lot of these chariots. And 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude. They came up and encamped in Michmash to the east of Bethaven. When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of God and Gilead, Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him were trembling. So let's stop there for a moment. These people are going to this battle. They realize they have a really big disadvantage against them. Man, these Philistines are stacked with their army. And when they realize this, they all start getting really nervous. They're hiding everywhere, and even the people that are with Saul are trembling. So what happens? He waited seven days the time appointed by Samuel in chapter 10, verse eight. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal and the people were scattering from him. So he's getting nervous now. Not only are people trembling, not only are people nervous, but now they are leaving him. So what does he do? So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. Let me stop there for a moment and just tell you, this sounds like something I would do. It kind of makes sense to me. He's sitting there waiting. Samuel's not there. Uh, The people are getting nervous, and he needs to get this war going. So he says, hey, bring the offering. I'm going to make this happen now so we could actually start this battle. But then he sees the consequences. As soon as he had finished the offering, behold, Samuel came. He goes, man, if I just waited a little longer. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, starts making excuses, when I saw the people were scouring for me and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal. And I want you to notice this phrase that he says, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and I offered the burnt offering. After that moment, Samuel tells him that God had this kingdom promised for him and now he will not have that promise anymore. So we see in this story that the Israelites finally have the king that they've been begging for. But quickly we realize that Saul has many faults. We see that he has impatience and he brings the offering himself. And I wonder to myself, the same person that said, I would have done that. Why is this such a big issue? Well, let me tell you a few of the reasons. First of all, he was being disobedient to what Samuel called him to do. Samuel said, "Wait for me and I'm going to bring the offering." Him being disobedient to Samuel was also him being disobedient to God himself. More than that, he, Saul, as a king, did not have the priestly right to actually do the offerings. So for him, when he actually does that, he's being disobedient to an establishment that God actually set in place. But behind both of these things, there's actually something that's happening right now in this moment that's been repeating throughout this entire book. And I want to explain it in this way. Israel has a problem. There's a lack of trust in the will and the desire and the way of God. And there's a big misconception in their practice of worship towards Yahweh. There's this constant temptation for the people to be like their neighbors, the other places around them. So even before they ask for a king, they're showing this temptation. They try to treat God like the false gods and the false idols of their neighbors. This is how idols would work. I would do this act of worship towards an idol, whatever it is that they asked, And in response, they would provide to me whatever it is that they provide. So here's the example Baal is one of the main focus idols of the Old Testament, and he was the god of rain. It was important because you needed rain to grow your crops, which brought finance and brought uh, food for your family. So what people would do is they would do the act of worship towards Baal, and he would respond to them by bringing rain. Baal was easy to manipulate and to control because all he needed to do was what he asked, and he'll provide what he said he would. So the Israelites try to do the same thing to Yahweh. There's this moment in the same book when they're going to battle, they're losing the battle, so what do they do? They say, bring the Ark of the Covenant. If we get that here where heaven touches earth, then God will actually fight for us and we'll win this thing. So they bring in the Ark of the Covenant and they get destroyed in that battle. And then right after that is the moment where they start begging for a king and why do they want a king because a king is easier to manipulate than god they don't want to worship god who has his own will his own way his own thoughts his own plan rather they want somebody that they can manipulate and get their own desires which is not god himself but what god can provide So now we're here in this moment and we notice their king is doing the same thing. We're going to lose this battle. People are scared. People are hiding. People are leaving. So what should I do? Bring the offering so I can use this offering to get the favor of God so we can win this battle. He does the same thing throughout both chapters over and over again. Saul brings out the burnt offering, but then in verse 18, when they're in battle, he brings the Ark of the Covenant out again. In verse 24, he forces a fast on the people that God did not ask for. He just tells them fast so he could get the favor of God. In verse 34, the people are hungry, so they start eating with blood, the meat with blood. And he calls for everyone, please eat with no blood because he doesn't want God to work against him. And then in verse 35, he builds an altar. It says it's the first time that he's ever done that. So this is not an act of worship for his part, but it's a way to get something out of God. And even with all these things, he doesn't learn his lesson from Samuel. When we look at all these acts at face value, we can say that these things are acts of worship. Fasting, building an altar, trying to obey God's commandments. But when we see the heart of Saul, what we notice is that he's actually using these things as a means to an end, that he's using means of worship to try to gain something out of God. And we notice that God is not with him in this time from verse 37. After all of these moments, he goes to God in prayer and it says this, Saul inquired of God, shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you give them into the hand of Israel? And it says this, but God did not answer him that day. What I would have called Saul's type of faith, this faith where he is trying to use religious acts to gain something out of God, I would have call this transactional faith. Transactional faith. Saul sees God as a means to an end, and he uses religious acts as a way to get God to respond and to gain his own desires. And if I were to be honest with you, I do the same thing all the time. Sometimes in funny ways and sometimes in more serious. But I think back about six months ago, my wife and I woke up and we had no AC in the house. AC was broken. I'm sweating. I feel gross. So I have to go now Figure this out, and if you've ever had that problem, you know it's no fun calling warranty, trying to get somebody to come and fix our AC unit. Well, then on top of that are shower breaks. I'm not a handyman. So it takes me about eight hours to fix like a small leak in our shower. It was the worst situation ever. I felt like a handyman and my wife took a picture of me after. But uh, eight hours in, I finally fixed the shower, but the AC is still broken. So we're still waiting. We go to sleep that night, we wake up the next morning, and I realize I made a big mistake. It's hot in the house because there's no AC. We cooked chicken the night before, and I forgot to take the trash out. I wake-yep, you know where this is going. I wake up. And there's maggots in the house. And if you ever dealt with maggots, you know they're no fun. You can't step on them because they'll squirt everywhere. You can't pick them up because then they're all wormy. And it's just the worst situation ever. And I hate bugs. Uh, right after that, because there's maggots and bugs in the house, we find a scorpion. I audibly express my fear. My wife goes to the room because she can't deal with me when I'm dealing with bugs. And finally, I clean this whole situation up. The AC will come. We fix the AC. Ah. <sighs> Everything is fixed. We go to a birthday party for a one-year-old, which you know is really just a birthday party for adults, and we come back home. When we get home, the AC unit is out again. There's this moment where I sit back, this is me being honest with you, and I just wonder to myself, God, aren't I one of your disciples? Like, aren't I serving your kingdom? Aren't you the God of the universe? You can't fix my AC unit. Like this is actually how I'm thinking. I'm thinking to myself, because I worship God, because I praise him, because I pray and I do different things, I read my word every day, then the Holy Spirit should protect my home from any problems. I should never have bugs in the house. I should never have broken sinks or showers. My AC should always work perfectly because it's working by the Holy Spirit. Like this is how I'm thinking in my life. And I realize in that moment that I'm thinking in the same way Saul is. That because I do some religious acts that God owes me something. I'm thinking in this way of transactional faith. And many of us reach that same place whenever tragedy hits. Last year, October, I get a text from my aunt. She says, Uncle Stan is in the hospital. Uncle Stan had COVID and he was on a ventilator. So she calls all the family to pray. Everyone starts praying, even the people that don't believe in God. A few weeks goes by, we get a text. Uncle Stan is doing better. He had a surgery. The doctor said, There is hope. We sit back and I remember praying and going, God, thank you for this. Would you please make sure that he's okay so that every one of our family members that doesn't believe in you can look back and go, it's because of prayer that he lived. A couple weeks go by, we're coming back from camp. I'm sitting in the van, I look down at my phone, and there's the text from Aunt Carolyn. I am so sorry to tell you, but Uncle Sam passed away. In that moment, the transactional faith hits again. Didn't we pray to you, God? Didn't we come to you and do what you ask of us? You're the God of life, you control all things. We came to you, we prayed. Why couldn't you fix this? When tragedy hits, transactional faith cannot last. It will crumble away. And for all of us, there's moments where we do the same thing. We pray, we read our word, we go to church. You did your membership class with Joshua. You're in an RC. You're doing every one of the religious acts that you feel like God is asking. And then you sit back when things maybe aren't going the way that you expected and you wonder why. I've done my part, God. So why is my son still sick? Why are my wife and I still fighting? Why are we struggling to pay the bills? Why do I still hate my job? Why have I not been able to find the one? Why am I still anxious? Why hasn't temptation gone away? In these moments when we look, we go, man, we think that religious acts earn us something from God. This is where Saul is, transactional faith, when we worship God as a means to an end. It takes so many forms in our life, but no matter what, it's that same thing that God ends up not being the one that we love for him, but we love him so we could get something through him. And let me give you permission right now that if you are sitting back and you're going, this is something that I am struggling with, to not have shame. God is constantly walking us through giving our idols to him. We have to first give the idols of the world and submit to him, but then after that, God corrects us to not make him another idol in our life and to actually love him for who he is. The good news is that we don't actually have to live this way, though. That there is actually another way to have faith that is not transactional like Saul, and God actually shows us in this passage. The opposite of this transactional faith is what Jonathan does, which I would call submissive faith we see this in the story during the story Saul is trying to use religious acts to gain the favor of God but in the same story Jonathan his son is actually living in the favor of God we see Jonathan throughout the whole story doing kind of the opposite of Saul Saul's hiding back he's always nervous he's trying to do all these things to make sure God gives him favor but Jonathan is going and actually defeating the Philistines Chapter 13, verse 3, he defeats the Philistines in Geba. In chapter 14, verse 6, he pursues with faith. You remember, the Philistines had a big squad ready to beat the Israelites. But then Jonathan goes by himself with one other guy and has confidence in God and says that God can win this battle even with a few. And then, chapter 14, verse 23, the Lord saves Israel through Jonathan. That God is actually working through Jonathan throughout all of this chapter and doing something special through him. But then we see something happens. The story kind of goes like this Jonathan was out fighting and he never heard his dad's call to fast. He goes and he eats some honey, which he loved and it was amazing, but then he finds out from somebody else that his dad told everybody not to eat. He says, Man, what has he done? So then when Saul doesn't hear the voice of God when he prays, he starts to point the finger at everybody and says, whose fault is it? He can't see that it's his own heart that's causing the problem. He finds out that his son Jonathan disobeyed the fast, so he sends him to die. And that is what we read this morning. Let me read this to you again. Verse 44. Saul said, God, do so to me and more also. You shall surely die, Jonathan. Then the people said to Saul, Shall Jonathan die? Who has worked this great salvation in Israel? Far from it. As the Lord lives, there shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground. And I want you to hear this. For he has worked with God this day. So the people ransomed Jonathan so that he did not die. I want you to notice the significance of this. While Saul is doing all of the religious acts, the low point of his story for him is him going to God and praying and God not responding to him. And at the same exact time, Jonathan is leading by example and defeating the Philistines. He never stops and does a big offering. He doesn't stop to do a long prayer. Matter of fact, there's not any religious acts that he does in the story. But everyone pointed to him and they said that he worked with God that day, This is the heart of submissive faith. Jonathan gets the root of God's desire for us to be with him. Jonathan is consistently confident in this chapter because of his deep awareness of who God is. And because he knows God and trusts him, he has this ability to submit to his will, to follow his lead, and has an awareness of the presence of God with him. And the hope for us is to be like Jonathan. The hope is that when people look at our lives, that they could say the same thing. They have worked with God this day. There should be something about us that's beyond religious acts. Something about our confidence and our character and our speech and our work and our lives where people can say they are with God and God is with them. More than that, if we could experience this in our lives, how special would that be? Not just people pointing to us and saying they are with God, but for us to actually experience life with God in every moment of our lives. If we can move from transactional faith to submissive faith, how could that impact our daily life in all of our daily moments? For me, this has been most experienced in my marriage. Uh, I was 21, and my wife was 20 when we got married. We we were really young, and I remember we were asking all of our friends what's marriage like. Uh, A lot of them were married only for like a year, and they told us all the same thing. It's amazing. It's the best thing ever. It's like having a sleepover and party with your best friend all the time. And then we get married, and we realize this wasn't at all was or our truth for our marriage. We get into marriage, and right from the beginning, we kind of realize this is tough for us. For both of us, we had a marriage that was really, really hard. And transactional faith clicked in pretty fast. I sat back, God, wasn't I obedient to you? Didn't me and my wife follow your commandments while we were dating and engaged? Aren't I working at a church? Don't I worship you? Shouldn't this just be easy? I started thinking to myself that because of my religious acts that God owed me an easy marriage. And I wondered why God didn't provide that for me. And I still remember the moment that this actually changed for me. It was one night sitting on my couch and I knew our marriage was not what my wife and I wanted And the Lord moved my heart towards submissive faith. And this is what my prayer sounded like on that couch that night. Lord, I give you my marriage. Do what you want with it. Right after that moment, God started working in our lives. My wife and I hit rock bottom in our marriage. We had to go into counseling, which we've been going to for two years and God just switched the perspective for us completely. Rather than focusing on using prayer and church and fasting to make our marriage easier, we now see God with us in the journey. In the highs and the lows, we notice God's presence with us. In the moments when we're laughing and joyous and things are amazing, we see God's presence. And when things are hard and tears are present, or we're in an argument or a baby is screaming in our ear, we know that God is still with us in even the low moments. Does God give us principles for our marriage? Of course. Does he call us to do things for the kingdom? Yes. Does he bless me and my wife with moments of joy and connection? Yes. But more than that, he never leaves us because of our hope in Jesus. This is what submissive faith has looked like in my life seeing God with me in the highs and the lows of our marriage. And the good news for all of us is that God has made a way for all of us to have this submissive faith like Jonathan. So how do we actually do this in our life? We start by receiving. We receive the gift that God has given us in the gospel. Through Jesus, God has provided a way for us to live with him. Matthew one twenty three says this, uh, an angel comes to Joseph and says that your son will be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. But more than that, Jesus lives this perfect life. He displays the character of God to the world and then he takes the one thing separating us from having this submissive faith and bears it all on the cross. He takes our sin, he bridges the gap and he gives us his ability when we accept him To be able to have eternal life. But what is eternal life in transactional faith? It's the idea that if I accept Jesus, then I'll be able to go to heaven. I'll have a mansion. I'll hang on the gold roads. It's going to be great. But submissive faith says something different. That when we receive eternal life, we receive what God promised in John 17.3. Eternal life is that they would know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. Sky J- uh, Jasani, in a book called With, says it perfectly. God's plan to restore his creation was not to send a list of rules and rituals to follow, nor was it the implementation of useful principles. He did not send a genie to grant our desires, nor did he give us a task to accomplish. Instead, God himself came to be with us. To walk with us once again as he had done in Eden in the beginning. God's desire through the gospel is for us to receive this truth and for us for eternity to be able to live with him even now while we patiently wait for Jesus' return. As he promises in Matthew 28:20, 20, I am with you always to the end of the age. We receive the gospel, but then what do we do after that? We submit to God. We submit all things to him. We live out what redemption's vision is. All of life is all for Jesus. So we say, God, not only do you get me, but you get my heart and my work and my wife and my kids. You get everything. My hobbies, my desires, every single thing is in your hands. We submit these things to you. And God takes those things into his hands and he lovingly does something with them he brings them back and says, thank you for giving these things. Now let me join you in them with you. And he walks with us in every moment of our life. We submit everything to him for his will, his glory, and his heart. And when we do that, what we end with is this. We pursue God, not for what we could get out of him, not for something outside of him, but we pursue God for God. Not only is all of life all for Jesus, but then when we pursue him, all of life is all with Jesus. We could actually live a life where we notice God in all of the moments. We begin to follow the call to pray without ceasing. We start to notice God in all of the details of life. We see how his relationship with us far expands religious acts to the daily moments when he is present with us. We pursue God for him and for him alone and not for anything we can get out of him. And we slowly fall more and more in love with the fruit of a life with God. And the result is us being transformed into the type of person that's like Jonathan where people can look at us and they can say, they are with God and God is with them. So for all of us, this is a journey that we must step on This is a progress that we go through with God. And one of the ways that we could do that is actually using good resources to help us know how to see God's presence in our daily life. So Joshua and I agree that there's a book that's easy to read and would be a helpful resource for all of us. It's this little book called The Practice of the Presence of God by Brother Lawrence. It's a really simple read but more than that is a, by a humble man that displays to us how we can see God in the daily moments of our life and how God is always present with us. We believe in this so much that Joshua actually said, if you have a desire for this book, if you kind of see that you've been living in that transactional faith and you have a desire to move to the submissive faith like Jonathan and you want to use this as a resource, then you could actually email Josh and he will buy you a copy that he will grab you one, and when you come to church, he will give you a copy so that you can actually use this resource to kind of move from that place of transactional faith towards a place of submissive faith. And if I were you, I would take him up on that, really email him and ask him if he would do that for you. So this is how I would conclude today. I would go back to that story in the beginning. The friend of mine that had a permanent display of his misconception that he had about God forever going around and showing people that he had this idea of who God was. My hope for all of us is this, that we can move away from transactional faith and become more like Jonathan in a submissive faith in such a way that we can have a display on our lives for the people around us to show who God really is, to show his true character and for people to see us and say they are with God and God is with them. With that being said, let me close our time in prayer before we go back into worship. So Father, we just thank you so much for your heart for us. We thank you for your kindness and your love. I thank you so much that you did not send Jesus to gain something out of us, but you sent Jesus to be with us. God, thank you that we can live life with you even now. My prayer for all of us is that you would lovingly expose the places in our life where we are living out transactional faith and you would bring us to a place of submissive faith where we can live life with you. We love you so much. Everybody said amen.